So what I want to try to do today is talk about some of the preliminary, sort of maybe testable hypotheses. As many of you know, suicide bombing has now become a bit of a cause célèbre among academics. And although terrorism was very much the long-forgotten stepchild of international security for quite some time, it seems like everyone and their brother is now interested in terrorism and suicide bombing in particular which means it's a particularly good time for me to stop working on this and work on the next book. So I'll, I'll, end, I'll end with that one. Um, so here's my shameless plug. I'm sorry for that. Uh, all right. So what are some of the um, issues regarding suicide terrorism? As is the case with terrorism in general, there are always going to be problems of definition. Uh, suicide terrorism and terrorism in general is controversial and tendentious. When you look at the work of someone like Alex Schmidt, he counts no fewer than 100 different definitions of what is terrorism. And so you can imagine that because you're all working, we're all working with different definitions or combinations of definitions, it makes a rigorous study particularly difficult because we're all looking at maybe different aspects. What I tried then to do for today is pull out what are the most common features of the 100, and I found nine that there is always the use of violence, the threat of more violence, that there is the deliberate production of fear or terror against a targeted group, that there needs to be the targeting of civilians, non-combatants, and innocents, which again is one of the key points of difference when you're looking at terrorism against a military target. Is that an insurgent tactic versus terrorism against innocent bystanders and uh, civilians? that there is the use of propaganda, coercion, intimidation, that it is a method or a strategy of conflict and sort of not an end in itself, that it is intended to communicate a message through its acts of violence to a larger audience. And in fact, I take Schmidt's understanding of audience one step further and identify that there are four audiences rather than one, and that it is predominantly a political character, a, a, a politically motivated act, in other words, an individual walking into a 7-Eleven uh, with an AK-47, that may terrorize people, but that is not terrorism. And that it is used as a tool of psychological warfare to mobilize sectors of the public. And I think with the uh, recent election of Hamas and the unbelievable victory of Hamas uh, versus Fatah, in uh, last week's election, I think that sort of some of the predictions that I make about how suicide terrorism is used to provide an organization in a competitive environment with its bona fides in order to attract a larger constituency might be borne out. Although at this point it's too early to disaggregate how many people voted for Hamas because Hamas is the most proactive suicide bombing group versus how many voted as a protest vote to Fatah or because of the Palestinian Authority's corruption and you know, very, very poor record of mismanagement. So what are some of the assumptions, and these are all testable assumptions and hypotheses that may be um, sort of for the next generation of scholars. One of the things that I identified in the book is that it's a second iteration tactic. So by and large, it's not present in the first or in the initial stages of conflict. It's not often the strategy of first choice. That it is always used in conjunction with other tactics, but it is more effective. And so again, one needs to unpack what do we mean by efficacy. This is again also one of the main points that Robert Pape makes in his uh, similarly titled book. Um, what's interesting though is that suicide bombing very often occurs 
in waves of other kinds of non-suicidal terrorism, uh, roadside bombs, for instance, what happened today to the ABC News correspondent. And so what ends up happening is that although it might be a very small percentage of the kinds of acts and violence being perpetrated at any given time, it is, however, the one that we hear most about. I identify in the book then both individual and organizational motivations for suicide bombing, which may not always be the same, or there may be some issues of overlap. But it's very interesting that when you sort of leave the academic environment and you go and you talk to the people, and of course the failed bombers are much easier to talk to than the successful ones. Um, when you talk to the failed bombers about their motivation, you may get somewhat of a different story. And so what I tried to do is a multimedia presentation, and I know, I know the students love when we do multimedia. Um, I've got some snippets of a camera crew that went in and interviewed some of the failed bombers as well as the person who recruited them for the Isla Palestinian Islamic Jihad, which is the very same group that perpetrated an act of suicide bombing in Tel Aviv just last week on January 21st. And so just to give you an idea of uh, what they say about themselves. This is where, again, I'm going to reiterate that there are multiple, multiple audiences involved and that the phenomenon is displaying certain elements of contagion either across regions, across gender, or even within the same state. All right. So what are some of the organizational objectives? And what I tried to do here is um, give you a sense of some of the existing literature, what are the key points with regard to ob objectives and motives. You have, on the one hand, a limited objective, which is to force the government to change its policy or rescind a law. That is one of the preliminary reasons why the Liberation Tigers of Tamil Elam began engaging in suicide terrorism, was uh, to overturn a law that was uh, very discriminatory towards Tamils um, pursuing a secondary or higher education, and as a result of some of the uh, Swabasha laws that were enacted in Sri Lanka, uh, this form of violence was considered to be a good idea as a temporary stopgap measure. Uh, another, another particular policy that uh, Kidd and Walter identify is to spoil peace. And you are able to see, for instance, around the time of elections, there may be an increase of activity on the part of the organizations in order to affect some sort of change in electoral outcome. Uh, one of the other objectives, which is a little more ambitious than the limited, is to drive out the occupier. And this is, again, Robert Pape from the University of Chicago, his main point. The problem is that among all of the different cases of suicide bombing, occupation appears to be a necessary, though insufficient, um, condition because, for instance, when you have suicide bombings in Bangladesh and there's no occupation, or it's very difficult, and I'll say this again in a, in a minute, to view uh, the motivations in a dyadic frame. In other words, when you argue that something is either occupation or religion, and then a religious fatwa comes out from the, from the scholarly class as it is your religious duty to fight occupation, it would be difficult to code it as either or. Whereas one of the things that I'm trying to argue is we should look at these things along a spectrum in which you have ideal types of the ideal religious organization, which was Al-Qaeda, which doesn't, Al-Qaeda Asulba, which is the core of Al-Qaeda, doesn't have much of a territorial base to it or is part of its ideology or in principle, as well as the ideal typical secular organization, which is completely denuded of a religious content, which would be the Liberation Tigers of Tamil Elam in Sri Lanka. And then pretty much every other organization that uses suicide terrorism falls somewhere along that spectrum in between. Um, you have an unlimited goal, 
which is to completely destroy the government with a revolutionary intent, which can be Marxist, but very often it's understood to be sort of al-Qaeda, the idea of Islamic revolution, um, reestablishing of the Third Caliphate, etc. And this is drawn from the work of Mark Sageman and Dan Pipes. And then finally, hopefully, my unique contribution, which is that it's addressed towards multiple audiences to mobilize the constituent population, gain political credibility, external funding, which acts as a form of rent. In other words, the money is not coming from within the conflict zone, but is coming from an outside patron or benefactor. And of course, if you've got multiple different groups that are using this violence, they begin to compete with one another, not just to sort of win the hearts and minds of the people, but to get the big check so that if you've got three or four groups, the Saudi money is going to go to the group that perpetrates the most spectacular attack that gets on you know, the front cover of the New York Times or the lead story in Al Jazeera. So here's the question about whether or not it's a second stage tactic. Basically, and this is just based on observation, um, first intifada, no suicide bombing yet in the second intifada. Uh, not the first Chechen war, but the second. Not the first war in Iraq against the United States, but the second. Not the first attack by al-Qaeda against the you know, World Trade Center, but in the second. And um, part of this has to do with why am I saying not in the first and the second? Well, suicide bombing as a tactic has existed, at least in its modern manifestation, since 1983. And so the Palestinians were certainly aware that it had existed in Lebanon, and they were also aware that it had been fairly effective in getting the Americans and the French to leave. And so this is why, since its modern manifestation, one would expect that organizations would naturally gravitate towards its usage. And the fact that they don't in the first, in the first sort of version of the campaign, and they do in the second, leads me to wonder whether a possible explanation for it being a second iteration tactic is whether, you know, for instance, in the first iteration there are other tactics that are deemed to be wanting, whether in the, between the first and the second there's been a hardening of military targets, and so it becomes more difficult to attack the military of the other side, much easier to attack civilians where suicide bombing is a very appropriate tactic, that possibly in the interim period, counter-terror tactics on the part of the state that has been the target of violence may have been stepped up to such an extent that it makes targeting against their civilians more acceptable to the rank and file, as well as one of the things we can observe with the introduction of high-tech weapons, especially helicopter gunships, the fact is, as the, as the targeted state is using very intense counter-terror measures, which involve technology, there is a psychological um, phenomenon that kicks in that people want to make the conflict intimate again. In other words, from the perspective of the terrorist, if they think that they're safe in their planes dropping a bomb from way on high, we are bringing this back to their doorstep by bringing it to their civilians, bringing it to their heartland, bringing it to, you know, sort of the common man. So the question is whether or not the fact that it's a second stage tactic can be measured as a result of these different um, strategies and phenomena that have kicked in. The issue of efficacy is one that is particularly problematic and sort of one in which I take issue with uh, the work that Bob Pape does, um, which he argues that suicide terrorism has been particularly effective in its political goals. Uh, the example being in 19, I guess he says that the um, use of suicide bombing in 93 through 96 um, forced Israel to do certain things and whether Israel left Lebanon because of the use of suicide bombing, etc. Um, the efficacy in terms of do terrorist organizations that use suicide bombing get 
their ultimate goals, independence, autonomy, estate? The answer is no. The closest thing we have to an effective use of suicide bombing was the Lebanese example of Hezbollah. And of course, there were a lot of other things involved. For instance, the development of a left, uh, left-wing movement in Israel of uh, conscientious objectors, the fact that for Israelis the Lebanon War became something akin to the Vietnam War in this country. Uh, there were a, lot of other, a whole host of other explanations as to why Israel left Lebanon. And in fact, the number of suicide bombings around the time when Israel pulled out of the southern areas of Lebanon um, had actually dwindled down to virtually nothing. So they didn't leave when the suicide bombing rate was quite high. They left after maybe a period of war weariness. Nevertheless, if we measure efficacy in terms of what are some of the goals of terrorist organizations to get their name out there, name recognition, to capture media and popular imagination, then suicide bombing looks particularly effective. In a society in which if it bleeds, it leads, suicide bombing kills six times as many people as regular insurgent tactics, wounds 12 times as many, gets eight times the press. This is even more so if it's a woman. And as I mentioned just a second ago, that there is evidence of contagion within country, across regions, across age, gender, and increasingly now to converts. For instance, uh, this woman, Marielle de Gouk, in Belgium, and this guy, um, was it Guy Krupenik, who uh, sent several jihadis to Iraq, also in Belgium. So if we consider that terrorism and suicide terrorism in particular is a form of political theater, I pulled out a quote from um, Sean McSteffen, who is the former head of the PRIA, and he says, terrorists are actors and their activities are performed as an operational drama with the world as an audience. Um, in a number of instances, when Black September was interviewed, you know, why did you use, to use Munich, because that's the big film now, right? Why did you choose to ha- perpetrate this act of terrorism at the Olympics? In other words, as you may know, historically, the Olympic Games was always a time when Greece and Sparta would put down their weapons and everybody, at least for the 10 or 15 days, would get along and bring all the nations together. Well, the answer on the part of the Palestinians was, for, for the West... Sports is your real religion, and we knew the cameras would be on. And so, in fact, in a time in which we didn't have CNN and Fox News and 24-hour news stations, perpetrating an act of terrorism in the 1970s at the Olympics was going to get you the maximum media coverage. And so many of the terrorist organizations are particularly media savvy. So what are some of these audiences that they're hoping to reach with the media? Well, the most obvious audience is the opposing government the government that you're saying, get off my land. But in addition to that obvious audience, there are three other identifiable audiences. There's one's own terrorist organization. Um, as is the case strong, let's say, from the work of, um, of Leighton and Fearon, terrorist organizations, like any other political organizations, need to guard against defection. And in fact, this would ultimately weaken a group. When you have this virtual alphabet soup of Palestinian organizations in the 1960s breaking off and sub-breaking off and sub-sub-breaking off, this ultimately was a way in which um, the Palestinian groups lost any kind of strength and sort of a divide and rule theory when you have the PFLP, which is the front, the popular front, PFLPGC, the PDFLP, these are all just breaking off from one group, let alone breaking off from the PLO as as a general rule. So as groups need to guard against defection, individuals from within their own cadres and from within their own ranks who think that they're not doing enough, uh, engaging in these um, extreme forms of violence allows them to show that they are particularly dedicated to the cause and are less likely to lose members of the group. 
but they're also addressing it to a constituent public. In other words, the larger individuals from whom the group is drawn, whether it's rank-and-file Palestinian or rank-and-file Tamil, rank-and-file Chechen, etc. And if they engage in violence that the public approves of, they get popularity by engaging in violence. If they engage in violence and the public rejects them, well, actually they start to lose popularity, and many of these organizations begin to distance themselves from the use of violence. And so what I tried to do in the book then was to provide two counterfactual cases in which groups had begun to either use suicide bombing or increase the attacks against civilians. The larger public from which they were drawn rejected them, and so they stopped. And I thought that that was an interesting sort of counterfactual case where these terrorist groups, although they are terrorists, are very politically minded, and no matter what their ideology is, they are very much interested in the pursuit of power. I think Hamas's recent electoral victory might be a sort of sense of how that works. Many of these groups see themselves as the future leaders of the state. And then finally, the issue of international public opinion. And although we may think and we may assume public opinion is always going to be negative against terrorism, outside the United States we'd be surprised how sympathetic the world is towards terrorists, and in part because, you know, let's say drawing from, let's say, the theoretical work of Durkheim, if I was to leave a bomb and walk away, you know, I'm a criminal, but if I strap the bomb to me, then I'm a martyr. The idea being that it's understood and um, assumed to be a different kind of violence when I, you know, am willing to sacrifice my own life in the, in the process. All right, so for the first audience, which is the opposing government, Part of what the terrorists are trying to do is to discredit the government and show it to be illegitimate. That ultimately the message is the real, the real victims are not the Israelis or the Russians or the Americans. The real victims are the, you know, the terrorists. And so they want to demonstrate that the conflict is so brutal and horrendous that the real victims are making this ultimate sacrifice. And I chose a picture here of helicopter gunships in order to convey the fact that, you know, th this use of technology, although insulates the military from additional casualties, it's very difficult to avoid the unintended consequences of mass casualties when instead of having the targeted assassination where you make sure that the only person that's going to die is the perpetrator when you drop a half-ton bomb on a building, killing you know their target, but maybe 13 or 14 other civilians? That becomes problematic. You know the attack again in Pakistan against Zawahiri just uh, what was it two weeks ago? 18 civilians were killed, and we missed Zawahiri. This is not helpful in the war on terror. With regard to your own organization, the fact that there are suicide bombers shows that there is a complete dedication to the cause. And according to Nasser Hassan's sort of key article in The New Yorker in November 2001, for every suicide bomber lost, the organization is able to recruit 12 new bombers for the future. It also shows the organization to be proactive. There was an interesting story that came out of Iraq about two years ago about in southern Iraq and the Shia areas around where the Badr and the Mahdi army were, the Badr brigades, that they were waving Zarqawi flags. And of course we know that they can't possibly support Zarqawi because Zarqawi's sort of secondary goal, some might argue primary goal, is to kill as many Shia as possible. But it was Zarqawi who was on the front line that appeared to be proactive. And so really the rhetorical support is because this is, this is the individual who's on the front line doing something against the Americans. 
But also when you have a proliferation of organizations and groups that are using suicide bombing, there is also the possibility of outbidding. And by outbidding, I mean that the groups begin to engage in a, in a stream of competition amongst themselves, both for claiming credit for particular attacks, as well as trying to outdo the other group in the lethality of the bombing event. Um, it was this particular event that sort of made me think about the outbidding possibilities. In August of 2001, this is a very well-known attack in Jerusalem by al-Masri against the Sabara Pizzeria. The reason this is so important is that al-Masri reconnoitered the, um, the pizzeria, you know, several days to ascertain when was the time of day when the maximum number of women and children were present, not necessarily soldiers, and decided to perpetrate this act of terrorism at a time to get the maximum number of women and children. What was interesting is that both Hamas and Islamic Jihad separately claimed responsibility for this bombing. And so as a result, after, after the, and there was another one in uh, July 20th of 2002, in which no fewer than four groups tried to claim responsibility. After that, the groups now make a video. For those of you who get a chance to see Paradise Now, the video has uh, a number of different things going on. First of all, you're making sure that this person who's um, said that they would perpetrate an act of martyrdom will actually do it. So you are guarding against the person changing their mind. They're now dead man walking, or now increasingly dead woman walking. But also, for those of you who may have you know, seen the movie or, or seen any of these videos, there's very often a huge huge logo of the organization in the background. And the bomber goes into great detail to say the time and the place of the bombing so that no other group can claim responsibility. It's a form of branding, if you will, that the group gets to benefit from the bombing. And it's interesting is in the first phase of bombings, the use of suicide bombings among Palestinians from, let's say, 1993 until 1998, uh, there were a number of bombings in which no one claimed responsibility. And again, one of the points that I make in my book, popularity of suicide bombing among Palestinians in this period was not particularly high. But after the year 2000, when the popularity of suicide bombings among Palestinians that were polled went up as much as 60, 70, 80, 82 percent, while every group that perpetrated an act of suicide terrorism wanted to make sure to claim the credit and get that credit. And that's when you start to see those videos. With regard to the sort of larger population from which the terrorists are drawn, um, you're really only going to see suicide terrorism develop into a campaign or see more than you know, one or two episodes if it begins to resonate with that larger audience and that it, it will be used to mobilize the population, as I mentioned earlier, to win additional adherence, but it also then for the organizations becomes a litmus test for their militancy. One of the points that uh, Ben Valentino made when we all got together for our group was that the terrorists live among the population and need their support to survive. Any of you who've ever seen the Battle of Algiers film know about the importance of the civilian population, either for aiding, abetting, for support, portage, hiding. Um, and so ultimately, because the terrorists live and work among the population and their storefronts are known to them, they don't want to alienate the population so much so that people will have incentives to pick up the phone and you know, call the police or contact uh, the authorities. And this, uh, I, as a picture, I show you, um, this is a, um, Islamic, uh, a Hamas Islamic Jihad um, march in which everyone comes out and you know, it's not hard to see who's who, right? 
it was an interesting anecdote in one of the interviews of a failed bomber that he had gone to the Hamas storefront to get the bomb, and Hamas had said, you know, we're fresh out of bombs today, but the Islamic Jihad guys down the street may have something for you. And so the storefronts are known, and in fact, they're even known from one organization to the other. Um, although we tend to see among the Palestinian villages that a whole village will be associated with one group or the other. And so when given the opportunity, you know, I want to be a bomber, I want to do something for my community, my community tends to be overwhelmingly, you know, a Hamas fan or an Islamic Jihad fan, I'll probably gravitate towards that group. But not every individual who chooses to become a bomber has a very firm political affiliation. With regard to the international opinion, um, and I pulled out just, again, not to be overly cheeky, but this is from the Indianapolis Star. Gary Varvel had this uh, cartoon. It, after Wafa Idris, the first female Palestinian bomber, blew up um, in January 27, 2002, um, so it's almost, it's almost an anniversary, um, the Saudis had a Jerry Lewis-like telethon and raised over $100 million for suicide bombers and other martyrs among the Palestinians. Now, let me just repeat. So this is, you know, 2002. After the war on terror, and the Saudis are our ally in the war on terror. So in other words, um, public opinion is not as clear-cut as it would be in this country, which would be very negative. In other parts of the world, people start to begin to ask questions, how bad must it be in that conflict zone that people are strapping these Im improvised explosive devices? But it's particularly important, and this is where I draw largely theoretically from the work of Charles Tilley, um, who was very crucial in, in writing that theory chapter, that when the funding is coming from outside sources, either a diaspora, which tends to be sort of a lot more radical than the people who live under the conflict, or it's coming from an external patron, there are huge incentives, as a form of rent, there's huge incentives to engage in competition. And so, as I mentioned earlier, the group that is going to be on the cover of the, of the Times or the lead story in Al Jazeera is more likely to get that money than the group that isn't operating or that is only engaging in benevolent activities or, you know, peace-building activities. And so that's why there are built-in incentives. Conversely, when I was in Sri Lanka um, interviewing Tamils there, the fact that the money had been cut off after 9-11 was the most persuasive aspect that the LTT began to give up suicide bombing and engage in peaceful negotiations with the Sri Lankan government. Because now the people who had to pay for the conflict were the ones living through the conflict day in and day out, and as a result, demonstrated a war weariness that is not observable in the conflicts where the money comes from outside. With regard to, let's say, during the course of interviews and, and other in, sort of interviews directly and directly, um, there's a lot of different motivations, and so it would be very, it's, it's wrong to say it's only one or the other. Uh, many of the individual motivations are multiple and overlapping. You do often hear in the first interview, you'll hear things, the rhetoric, oppose the occupation or combat humiliation. For many people um, at an early age, seeing their father humiliated at a checkpoint was the turning point in their lives that made them gravitate towards violence. But they also talk about not letting down their community, that um, to a certain extent, they feel that their lives are susceptible to be ended at any point in time, and that by choosing the time and location of their death, it's a form of empowerment, which I can imagine those of you in the audience find that very strange. 
But among the list of reasons that are given, and I give you the whole list, you know, to show dedication to the cause, to increase personal status, and, and they can't actually say that this is why they did it, but in fact, um, given the fact that many of these Palestinian uh, suicide bombers become virtual rock stars in their community, uh, streets are named after them, parks. Um, in Sri Lanka, there are Martyr Day celebrations held, not just in the Tamil areas, but in Toronto and in Boston, in Australia and in South Africa, where they produce these glossy magazines with every martyr, their name, where they're from, their kill rate. Um, I've heard talk about uh, sort of a, like a baseball card version. You know how we have those Jeffrey Dahmer cards here for mass murders that they're, you know, someone's thinking of marketing these cards. I mean, it's really unfortunate in that the culture has been so subsumed with this. People talk about the big check, and I don't want to exclude it, but I also don't want to give it too much credibility. The Tamils don't get paid. Many of the bombers in Iraq now who are coming from Saudi Arabia are independently wealthy. They're not getting a big check. Um, so it really was limited to Palestinians at a certain point in time. And the money was to rebuild the home that the Israelis, as part of British martial law that was adopted by the Israeli state, that anyone who's involved in an act of terrorism, the state, first the British and then later the Israelis, would go in and bulldoze their home. Originally that money was to replace the family home. Just last year the Israelis have finally done away with that rule after over 50 years. They finally realized it wasn't that effective a deterrent. Um, when you talk to people, you get a lot of revenge for past grievance as one of their motivations. Whether it's a past grievance against a lost loved one, like the black widows in Chechnya, or women who have been sexually abused and now funneled into the terrorist groups, or it's just a larger grievance of, you know, this affected me. The biggest religious explanation is not the 72 virgins, which everybody likes to talk about, but actually the ability to intercede for 70 of your relatives. So it provides also an incentive for the relatives um, not to inform on the member of the family who might be involved with Hamas and might be planning an operation. The 70 relatives that automatically get into paradise do so regardless of how licentious they behaved in, during their lifetime, how many Islamic laws they broke, and so that is generally the big incentive right there. But as you'll see along those motivations, it's very difficult to disaggregate the religious from the secular nationalist. What do these psychological theories reflect about personal motivations? Well, we have both the fact that there is a certain amount of disorientation and issues drawing, let's say, from Gurr's work of rising expectations, that people expect that their lives will look one way and they're very disappointed that maybe under occupation it's unlikely. There's relative deprivation that kicks in. Uh, Palestinians who, are, who haven't, um, let's say, a university education, which was probably very difficult to come by, especially in lieu of Israeli policy of closures, that they finally, after maybe six years, get their bachelor's degree and now frustrated by the lack of opportunity or many people talk about being frustrated by the lack of peace dividend or lack of movement and peace, and as a result, there's no peace dividend. As well as the fact that in many of these war-torn conflicts that have now lasted you know, through at least a generation, we have the development of post-traumatic stress. And as a result of this PTSD, it's not that it's going to be alone, uh, alone as a motivator, but it creates an environment in which violence is more likely. And then finally, there's the issue of group dynamics. Um, many of the people who, you know, when, when they discuss why it is that they became a suicide bomber, they talk about not wanting to let their community down or wanting to do something proactive for their community. And it was likened 
Um, David Rappaport likens it to uh, the reason why most people who receive the Medal of Honor or the Purple Heart, let's say in Korea or in World War I, uh, when a grenade came rolling in and they threw their body on top of it, it wasn't for, you know, love of God and country, but it was to save the rest of the platoon. The idea that you don't want to let your buddies down, and in this case, you don't want to let your community down as well as the fact that the community empowers the individual and lauds and applauds the individual's actions. And so it becomes a bit of a, of a loop in which there's feedback. People want to do something for the community. This is what the community values, and this is the way that you can be valuable to your community. Um, basically, and this is drawn from the work of, uh, actually the best work being done in terrorism, I'd say now, is John Horgan at the University of St. Andrews that there's a wide variety of roles. What he does is he identifies psychologically what are the tipping points for people to go from being either a passive supporter to a violent actor in a terrorist organization. And so basically there are different points in time in which something will um, convince an individual to go from loosely supporting the group to wanting to aid and abet and get involved to wanting to get involved violently to being willing to sacrifice yourself as well as it's uh, not just a linear and flat um, series of uh, possible tipping points, but at what point the individual becomes so disgusted with the group that they may say, you know, throw their hands up in the air and say, I've had it, which again is sort of from a counterterrorism perspective, a much better way to approach it because if you can flip someone who's on the inside, you can gain a lot of information. And so the, he draws his work a lot from interviews from IRA, Eamon Collins in particular, who apparently was a very, you know, relatively high-ranking member of the IRA, and at a certain point found himself in an IRA operation, sitting around with a group of cadres. The leader of that particular, of that particular unit was also a priest. And they were watching television. News came on the TV about a bombing in London in which a policewoman was killed. And the priest uttered something like, well, I hope she's pregnant because then we get two for one. And the reaction on the part of this individual was complete disgust. I mean, first of all, as a Catholic, as a conservative, as an Irishman, this was not the organization that he had joined. And so not only did he leave the organization sort of psychologically, but began to inform and provide the police with information that was invaluable. So this is the kinds of things that we can be aware of from an Islamic perspective to focus in on the parts of suicide bombing that don't make sense, that are hypocritical, that actually negate the Quran and Islamic principles. And I think that that's the problem. We haven't done enough sort of winning to try to win hearts and minds that way. Instead, you know, um, we've used military might. And the, the sentence, uh, so I'll repeat myself from the book, is although military might you know, is a hammer, not every problem is a nail. It's not always the most appropriate response for counterterrorism. All right, so I just pulled out a few quotes because I'm not assuming everyone read the book. Um, so someone who says that this is not Palestinian doesn't know what is occupation. From our side, also innocent women and children are being killed. I don't intend to kill innocents, and I take precautions. I left the vegetable market and didn't detonate because of the presence of women and children. And, of course, this person who was selective in their targeting got caught because they failed because they were able to be interviewed, right? So, again, the fact is even these bombers have their own moral qualms about who they are going to kill. And we know there, there have been a few bombers, and one Chechen woman in particular, who changed their mind. And uh, this is where that video is particularly important and where I think Paradise Now has a sort of section on, you know, the person who starts to have qualms and changes their mind. And 
from what I understand from the organizations, no one's penalized for changing their mind, but they might be, they don't get the, the rewards, the community rewards, and they might be very embarrassed if they've made that video. There's this evidence out there that, you know, they backed away. With regard to revenge, and it's interesting, it's gone from being very personal and intimate and local to a wider community. It was after the istishad, um, this is a bomber, istishad of a friend and the shahid, shahid means martyr, but one that would be killed by Israelis and not that self-martyred, of the baby Iman Hagu. These two cases made me think that human life is threatened every moment without good cause. Just because I'm Palestinian, the missiles are falling everywhere without distinction between those who are soldiers, civilians, kids, or adults. And so again, by, by choosing to be a bomber, this individual who thinks that their life may end at any moment empowers himself by choosing the time and place of his death. All right, so what are some of the organizational motives to summarize what it is that I'm saying in the book? The terrorist groups use suicide bombing under two conditions, when other terrorists or military tactics fail and when, they, when they're in competition with other groups for popular or financial support. And second, which is also important, uh, suicide bombing only spreads in countries where the population is receptive to the terrorists targeting civilians. The organizations also want the state to overreact. Osama bin Laden was very pleased about the Iraq war. He actually wanted there to be even more of a response. Part of this draws from the idea that they, they will draw a foul, that the organizations at the outset tend to be rather small, their ability to mobilize is limited, they're not that popular to begin with. But by engaging in an act of violence that then causes the state to overreact, they can mobilize new sectors of the population. And so this is from The Shining Path, which said the goal was to provoke blind, excessive reactions from the state. Blows laid on indiscriminately would also provoke among those unjustly or disproportionately affected an intense resentment of the government. The IRA initially did not have huge support among Irish Catholics in the North. And in fact, they would perpetrate acts of terrorism and that they would give a, a false report to the police and the police would rush into a village and end up harassing and arresting these little old people. And everybody in the village knew that these old people had nothing to do with the violence, but the fact that the British had behaved this way made the rest of the whole village then sort of hate the British and like the IRA or gravitate towards the IRA. The same thing is true of the LTTE. The LTTE's popularity in 1983 was rather limited, and they perpetrated an act of violence against 12 Sri Lankan soldiers. The result, in part, were the 1983 riots, which the support for the LTTE from, let's say, maybe 500 people went from 500 to 8,000 within just, you know, a month or so. So it is deliberate to try to get the state to overreact to provoke blind, sort of blind anger and revenge. Uh, I use the term to, you know, to force the state to rip, rip off the, you know, the mask of democracy and show it to be the ravening beast that they say it is. So what are some of the alternative hypotheses that my research challenges? And those of you who read it will recognize where I get this from. Suic oops, sorry. Suicide terror is an exogenous response to foreign occupation. Well, not always. There's not always foreign occupation. Foreign occupation certainly exacerbates the possibility and, in fact, creates an environment in which suicide bombing will be applauded and appreciated. That suicide terror only occurs against democracies. It is, if you can do some concept stretching and look at Egypt as a democracy and Sri Lanka under, you know, martial law, 
uh, Chechnya and Russia. I mean, again, the democracy aspect is problematic. And in fact, one could make the opposite argument, that in democracies, fully functioning, fully fledgling, fully fledged democracies, there are alternate mechanisms to express one's grievance electorally or through regular protests. You don't need to suicide bomb. So the issue of democracies is problematic. That suicide terror is not about religion. And again, for those of you who are more adept at statistics than I will ever be, um, if you take out one case from the data set, which is the LTTE, we're back to religion. And in fact, since 9-11, since except for one, uh, two, two cases of suicide bombing in Sri Lanka, every suicide bombing since 9-11 has been because of religion. And any suicide bombing trying to kill Americans is because of religion. So the LTTE, and you know, having spent some time with them, interviewing them, and I'm you know, still in relatively close contact, I can guarantee you the LTTE does not want to blow anything up in this country. And in fact, they, were, you know, they really don't hate Americans. They like Americans. They especially like the Americans after they wrote those checks after the tsunami. Um, that's so you have both suicide terror is not about religion, but is mitigated by religious commonality. The example in the book is that the LTTE did not use suicide terrorism against the Indian peacekeeping force, which was occupying it, because they're Hindu and the Indians were Hindu. Well, this sort of ignores the fact that the LTTE has used suicide bombing against moderate Tamils who are Hindu. And when you ask the LTTE, which I did after the book emerged, so curious, why didn't you use it against the IPKF? And they said, well, actually, Captain Miller's explosion, the, the explosion against Captain Miller in which one of the high-ranking uh, LTT colonels was killed was an accident. They said to me, you don't send a colonel on a suicide bombing mission. You send cannon fodder. And in fact, they were supposed to get away. And so because this had happened and they had lost a high-ranking member of their military, they began to rethink and try to create a standard operating procedure, which meant they began to think, how can we use suicide bombing? And they started again in 91, in which a woman named Danu was able to kill Prime Minister Rajiv Gandhi. So again, it's very interesting when you, when you actually talk to the organizations or the leaders, why is it that you do certain things and not others? This idea of religious commonality or religious difference for the LTTE, which is such a secular organization, was completely preposterous. And what I was told by them was, if you go to the, o the MOU, which is the agreement that they were negotiating with the Sri Lankan government, two of the articles makes very clear, we are not about religion. We do not discuss religion. Religion is to have no impact on the state. So they really don't care about religion. They reached out to Muslim Tamils initially, and there have been Christian Tamils who perpetrated acts of suicide terrorism among the Sri Lankans. So again, that's just wrong. Um, and then finally, the one that, am, that amused me because of my work on women, that female bombers tend to be older, or they're old maids in their society, with few marriage opportunities. What I did was, this is um, a camera crew went into the jails, and so let me present to you because no one's seen it in this country. Well, okay, through me, but. Um. Gotta love the technical difficulties. Okay, so the camera crew in Israel goes in to talk to the bombers.
So the point is then that looking at the relationship between either sort of secular nationalist goals, occupation versus religion is really a false dichotomy because even this guy who is a representative of Palestinian Islamic Jihad is listing off, well, you know, to protect our holy places against the occupation for God. In other words, it's very difficult to disaggregate or to use your guys' terminology to code it as secular or religious. I wanted to just sort of uh, very quickly finish up because I want to make sure that there's enough time for Q&A. When I talk about contagion, in the 1980s, there were three locations where you had suicide bombing. So Lebanon, Kuwait, and Sri Lanka. Um, within a very short time span, the map begins to look like this. Like this. <laughs> And so you start to see you start to see the contagion, and the contagion is very. And I haven't put Bangladesh on because Bangladesh was just about two months ago. I mean, it's really quite shocking. Um, what happens is, of the 46 groups, and I guess now it's 47 in 20 countries, most are Islamic. And it's not because that there's anything about Islam per se that is dysfunctional, or you know that there's something wrong with one particular religion. What's happened though is, within the Islamic context, you have the development of certain uh, or or the emergence of certain sheikhs or religious authorities who have justified it within an, an Islamic context. They've completely bastardized and distorted the sayings of the Prophet or hadiths or surahs and to justify the use of suicide bombing in a way that we haven't seen the same kind of appreciation within either a Christian or, uh, or Jewish context. And so this is why it's spreading within the Islamic context, not necessarily because of the faith, but because of representatives of the faith who are looking at different kinds of um, interpretations of jihad, you know, um, people going into battle, knowing that they're going to, 
not come out alive, well, that's exactly like what's going on with an occupation. You know, it's sort of a battle. People are willing to make the sacrifice, etc. And in fact, we saw this particularly the case with women, where initially the Islamic groups were opposed to the use of women, and only secular groups would use women. Hamas and Islamic Jihad mocked the Al-Aqsa Martyr Brigades and the PFLP for using women. And then eventually, Islamic Jihad began using women, and finally Hamas began using women. And so we, we are starting to see sort of an intellectual and theological flexibility. Um, in terms of the contagion, the actual contagion, so Hezbollah begins sort of the first major suicide bombing event, which is in October of 83, is the attack against the Marine barracks and against the embassies against the French and the British, sorry, the Americans and the French in Lebanon. And from there, the, uh, the Hezbollah provided training to the Sri Lankan Tamils, um, and again, through Palestinians. In 1987, it sort of gravitates over to Sri Lanka. Interestingly enough, what happens is in 1992, about 200 Hamas and Islamic Jihad supporters are arrested by Israel, and the Israelis take them, they drive them up to the border with Lebanon, and they just dump them there. And the Lebanese government's like, well, we don't want them. I mean, definitely not. And Hezbollah said, we'll take them. And the Hezbollah did. And they put them in an area called Marjazahur, which is a mountainside area. And for about six months, these 200 Palestinian expellees stayed at Marjazahur with Hezbollah. Not surprisingly, for those of you who do international law, this was a violation. You can't just take people you don't like and drive them up to the border and leave them there. So the Israelis, over a period of the next six months, had to gradually take the 200 Marjazahur expellees back. It shouldn't surprise you that within the year, many of the people who had been Marjazahur expellees were now the leaders of different suicide bombing hubs among Palestinians. And so 1992, and then when we start to see suicide bombing in Israel, in 93, by the very same people who were expelled. And so we have the direct contagion of having, you know, been given not just an intellectual, ideological support, but actual training. But it's now sort of moved all over the place, here and, you know, presumably here. Part of the problem is, and this is something when the United States Army surrounded Abu Hishma with some barbed wire and started to issue identity cards and have checkpoints in Iraq, in the Sunni Triangle, um, I even deigned to go on Fox News and say, I thought this was a really bad idea. Because the more that the Americans behave like Israelis, the more, you know, the insurgents would act like Palestinians. And that, you know, part of the problem is, in imagery for propaganda, this is ultimately very problematic if the United States is being perceived as torturing, like the Israelis tortured, as engaging in human rights violations, even though they say one thing and on, you know, with the second side of their mouth they say something else. But an image like this, one of these images is from Israel and one is from Iraq. And I would challenge anyone to be able to tell me which one is which. So in the media, in, on Al Jazeera and other places, when you have these two images of the occupation you know, of Palestine and the occupation of Iraq superimposed on one, one another. And the fact that the Israelis kind of look like they're American, I mean, you've got a real demographic diversity within the IDF. And what, of course, you know, as part of the agreement, they're using American weapons and they're driving American tanks and flying American planes and carrying American guns. And so with the superimposition of the two images, it becomes easy to sell the idea that these occupations are the same, even though the occupation of Iraq is not the same. Nevertheless, 
you have images like this as a result that are equally, you know, sort of in, in, indistinguishable one from the next. So I want to stop here sort of on a, on a, a scary note, but providing maybe people with some hope that, you know, in the counterfactual cases where you could convince the population, and again, you can't deter the bomber. That bomber, once he or she has decided, nothing you can do. But you can make sure that the community doesn't laud and applaud what the bomber has done. There would be mechanisms for us to be able to exploit the Islamic you know, sort of um, the tenets of Islam that would say that this is the wrong thing to do. Islam is very clear. It is against civilian casualties. It is against killing women and children. It is against killing other Muslims. And yet that is precisely what's happening in Iraq. And I think that if we can do a better job of exploiting the fact that this is not what Islam is about, we would see more people like uh, Tartusi and Muqdesi. Muqdesi, by the way, is the um, ideological mentor of Zarqawi coming out against Zarqawi. We need to see more of these voices coming from within the Islamic context framed in an Islamic way so that the communities will say, you know, this really isn't the way for our future. So let me stop here on a more hopeful note and uh, open it up to questions. Oh, Right. I mean, even though I've written a book on suicide terrorism, I don't want to fetishize it as being something so different. My point was that when suicide terrorism occurs with regular terrorism, we only hear about suicide terrorism. But the benefits of suicide terrorism are numerable. One, um, someone once said to me, you know, why don't they train the cadres so that they will, under torture, provide inaccurate information? You don't need to train anybody for torture because they're not going to survive the blast. You don't need to worry about an escape route. You don't need to worry about the person, you know, providing information about the whole network. So it really it guards against and ensures cohesiveness of the group on that level, sort of um, the strategic level, as well as this idea of mobilizing new people that ultimately providing this sacrifice inspires the community and activates people's imagination. But the, the other thing is going sort of philosophically. You know, leaving the bomb makes the individual a criminal. Attaching the bomb to himself or herself makes them a martyr. And it, it has a different impact philosophically and theoretically on, the, on that audience that what's happened with suicide bombing... For some of the people in the audience. For some of the people in the audience. And what's happened... But, but even... Even, even sort of non-affiliated bystanders, I think that the Europeans have been much more sympathetic to the Tamils and the Palestinians, regardless of suicide terrorism, in part because they think things must be worse than we know. There must be part of the story that's hidden if individuals are so willing to make the sacrifice versus if it's just straight-out terrorism. Straight-out terrorism is easily you know, condemned, but... Suicide terrorism starts to make us not just look at the individual biography of the individual, their motivations, but also 
you know, what the community response is. And let's see. And finally, uh, I think suicide terrorism is just, as you said, it's a tactical and strategic innovation, but I don't think that it's it, – uh, and this is where I'm disagreeing with Bob, I don't think that it's completely separate. I do think that it's part and parcel, but it has certain unique elements to it that regular terrorism doesn't have. So that's what makes it worth studying. And it also makes it worth studying just in terms of, um, it's just, it's, it's very, I mean, for me, very interesting. Much more interesting than just regular terrorism because with the regular terrorism, you start getting into what's a freedom fighter and what's an insurgent. And what's you know how do you sit there and you disaggregate? You know when the attacks uh, with the IRA and the LTTE, they don't consider themselves terrorists. And there's lots of Tamils globally and lots of Irish Catholics globally that don't consider them terrorists. Whereas again, strapping on an improvised explosive device and walking into a room like this at let's say the overseas program at Hebrew University, this is clear. So there's a little bit more of a clarity of what is terrorism and what isn't when you have the suicide aspect. The lady in the hat? That's yeah, a, you know, I always get this, like, how come it hasn't happened again here? And I sit there and go, like, because we're really lucky. No, it's actually it's more than that. Um, Bruce Hoffman, who's the head of the terrorism project at RAND, says that you need to have a fairly sophisticated infrastructure in order to have an attack, because these attacks are never just someone strapping on an improvised explosive and walking into a public facility. Um, for those of you who see the movie Paradise Now, there's a whole organization and network behind that bomber. There's going to be the quartermaster who procures the bomb and the bomb maker and the engineer. You're going to have people who are the driver, the person who takes the video. I mean, you're starting to deal now with a fairly sophisticated organization with many people. And that kind of infrastructure doesn't yet, hopefully, exist in this country. What we've been very effective at doing is disrupting some of the uh, financial networks. And there's a lot of stuff we haven't heard about, which you don't want to hear about, that, have, that has been deterred, um, including one that was in the news about um, bombs that were, going, that were placed in Herald Square in the subway system on the one and the nine uh, to, to be detonated around the time of the Republican National Convention. So that there have been deterred events, although not along the lines of the 9-11. Another explanation is that 9-11 has raised the bar. And so that if Al-Qaeda, Sulba, if Al-Qaeda tries to do anything less than something really spectacular, they're actually going to look more weak than if they didn't do anything and they waited till they could do something spectacular, which is where Graham Allison comes in and says, aha, so we have to worry about nuclear terrorism. I'm looking over at John because I know your reaction to that. Um, and then the final thing has to do with um, the position of um, the Muslim community in, in America. Uh, this is very much in contrast to Europe where Muslim communities in Europe, whether they're Kurds and Turks in Germany or South Asians in England, have generally been second-class citizens that have not been treated particularly well. They haven't been assimilated particularly well. We saw, for instance, with what was going on in Paris with the riots. I would say that the American Muslim community is sort of diametrically the opposite of that. American Muslim community has proven to be an incredibly loyal part of the American quilt, so to speak. And a lot of the information that we, or the, the people who I sometimes work for, have gotten to deter any events has come from the American Muslim community calling up authorities saying, someone's walked into the mosque, they're trying to rabble-rouse, come pick them up, we don't want them here. 
and they will say, we left those countries to come to America. And so the joke that I made, which got me a little bit of flack, was, you know, Pakistani Americans, you know, become IT professionals and, and dentists. They don't go to jihad in Kashmir. In other words, the American dream for anyone who comes here through education and upward mobility, and the American Muslim community has been particularly patriotic. There might be a very small element of that community that doesn't appreciate, for instance, the war in Iraq, doesn't appreciate continued support of Israel, may not appreciate the Patriot Act, but this is not a community that is on the verge of, you know, perpetrating acts of terrorism or aiding and abetting an external individual who comes in. The gentleman in red. I mean, it's, it's, there's, no, thanks. there's no way to actually know. I mean, I've heard people say, Dan Benjamin has said that um, no, uh, actually Al-Qaeda was on the ropes and they were weak, and so 9-11 gave it a new lifeblood. Others will argue that since 9-11 and the disruption of the Al-Qaeda bases in Afghanistan, that they're actually weaker and so that they can't coordinate that level of attack. I don't know if 9-11 was completely effective. In other words, Osama bin Laden was on record as saying that he wanted the United States to also turn against American Muslims. He wanted the United States to engage in a new crusade. He wanted, the, he wanted to sort of, uh, I guess he read, in addition to reading Road Stakes, I guess he read Sam Huntington. He wanted the clash of civilizations. I don't think we have that. I think that absent of the war in Iraq, um, it, we haven't had the kind of reaction that Osama would have ideally liked. The war in Iraq, unfortunately, does fit within the paradigm because in 1998, he said to ABC's John Miller, the United States isn't interested in the Middle East. They want to occupy an oil-rich Arab country that threatens Israel and emasculate it. I don't think he used the word emasculate it, but sort of base, that's the basic idea. And so in response to 9-11, we go to war and occupy an oil-rich Arab country that threatens Israel. And, you know, and that's the problem when, it's, when the rhetoric of the crazies begins to look like it's got something behind it, that helps mobilize the population. What has happened, however, since Beslan, the attack in Chechnya, the northern Ossetia in September of 2004, since this attack in Jordan just in November of 2005, the fact that many Islamic preachers are coming out against the use of um, violence, the use of suicide bombing, that um, the, the imam of the uh, Finsbury Park Mosque, which was previously the most radical center in England, after July 7th said, this is wrong. And in fact, not only did he say this is wrong, the families of the bombers came out and said this is wrong. I would say that the new Pew reports are showing kind of the opposite, that 9-11 may have been momentarily effective, but in the long term, the continued use of violence and suicide bombing against, against Muslim civilians is actually hurting al-Qaeda, Sulba, the core of al-Qaeda. Whereas a lot of these groups that are affiliated with al-Qaeda, whether it's in the Philippines, the Abu Sayyaf or the MLIF or, you know, all the different groups that exist worldwide, many of them have local grievances that they are trying to address. And this idea of the global jihad is the pipe dream. And I think that uh, that's not, you know, we're not getting any closer to that. We're not getting any closer to a third caliphate. And I actually take... I take um, a great deal of hope in the fact that someone like Mugdesi, who trained 
Zarqawi is coming out against Zarqawi. And Tartusi in Europe, who was formerly a radical preacher, talking about going to jihad is now moving away from that. So, you know, again, it's, it's, a very powerful, it's a very powerful message when it's coming from within the Islamic community. And this is where I agree with Tom Friedman. He says we need more moderate Muslim voices to come out against it. The lady. You know, it, it was a. I did an interview on NPR this morning, and what's interesting is that we forget how important women have been in terrorism previously. For instance, Ulrika Meinhof for Bader Meinhof organization in Germany, and in fact, David Rappaport puts the very first terrorist incident, which is the anarchists against the Russian czars in the 1880s, as Vera Sizulich, and Vera Sizulich being one of the most famous first terrorists. It's a woman. And Leila Khaled, who was a virtual poster child for, like, the sexy, hot Palestinian hijacker. And she was all over and fed it in Europe and all that. And so women have been involved in terrorism in very often, um, not often frontline roles, but very often in support roles. And part of it has been that terrorism has changed. I mean, the terrorism, the new left terrorism or the anti-colonial terrorism of the past has been replaced by religious terrorism, let's say, we put the point at 1979, but especially since the 1980s, with religious terrorism, finding a comfortable role for the women has been difficult. So the women have been involved in sort of contentious politics all along. It's whether or not they've been permitted. And so that there was an instance of a Palestinian woman who first went to Hamas, and Hamas said, go away, little girl. And so she perpetrated the act of terrorism for al-Aqsa martyr brigades um, so that the women have been there. What was so interesting to me that during the course of the interviews is that it was the women who were putting pressure on the former head of Hamas, the assassinated Sheikh Yassin, to allow women's participation, that initially Yassin and the Islamic Jihad mocked the secular groups for using women. Oh, you're hiding behind your women's skirts. You're not manly enough. And in fact, using women was used to shame the men into participating and you know, recruiting more men. But in fact, they eventually relented. And I don't know if they relented because of the women's pressure or they relented because it became much more difficult for the men to get through the lines. And now the Israelis weren't profiling women. And so now it's moved now towards Europeans. And we're not profiling Europeans. And so although we say we're not profiling, we're profiling. And we have to stop profiling because as soon as we profile and the profile is known, all the groups have to do is alter slightly the operative, and it falls under the radar screen. What's a better, what's a better strategy, and, and again, I came, up, I came up with this idea after many, many caparinas. And so for those of you who know me, I'm very much inspired by alcohol. And <laughs> that's terrible. No, actually, I came with this, what happened was someone came up to me and said, we just got a DHS grant to um, do phys or profiles of terrorists. You know, we know it can't be done, but we took the money. I said, oh, well, that's not a good thing. I said, well, actually, I have an idea. So here I'm drinking, I'm drinking. I said, well, you know, I have an idea. Because this is a person who was at NYU, and they do imaging with computer imaging in virtual reality. Uh, and they originally worked with dancers. And from dancers, they were now going to suicide bombers. And I said, well, you know what you could do? You could take a woman who's pregnant versus a woman who's pretending to be pregnant and has the improvised explosive device. And you could use the computer to chart 
that they, and again, I've never been pregnant, but you, apparently you sit, you stand, you walk differently when you're pregnant versus when you're not pregnant. I don't know if it's because of the ankles or because of the belly, but apparently it, it changes your center of gravity. And that you could do that just in sort of the stick figure so that you could see the difference. And then you, you could train law enforcement to look for the physical attributes, not the physiognomy, not the last name, not the way they look, but the way they move. And through movement, be able to do behavioral profiling. And this was, again, something that we had talked about with part of our grant, and it was a great idea. And so someone said to me, you know, how did you think of that? And I said, you know, Rachel just didn't look pregnant on Friends. You know, she just didn't walk <laughs> pregnant. And so my, the point is for the grad students, your, your sources of inspiration will come from a variety of places, whether it's a bottle or watching too much TV. So don't turn off the TV and stop drinking when you're writing your dissertation. <laughs> Actually, you, it was, the, this one was Israel, this one was Iraq. Yes. Okay. Uh, my left. Okay. Um, Good call. Uh, my question is, is it because it looks more modern? The street looks more modern here? Yeah, or? Oh, you're good. You're good. The bus is painted with egghead colors. Or what? Get get this man a job with Homeland Security. He's very observant. The license plate is not very license Very nice. with regards to personal motivations for suicide terrorists, my my experience more with Palestinian, but it I thought it was that they tried to Well, no, one of the things is, you know, if one of the ways sort of operationally that the, uh, the organization, they separate the individual from their family for a, anywhere from a period of three days to a week because you don't want, again, and this was in the movie, he goes out with the girl and all of a sudden he has qualms because, you know, wait a second, there's this beautiful Moroccan girl who likes me now. So now he's starting to have second thoughts, right? So you don't want them to have second thoughts by being exposed to the family. So if you're a family member and all of a sudden, you know, your son's been missing for three days to a week and they've been previously active with Hamas, it's not difficult to figure out where they might be. And so one of, one of the bombers that was interviewed was because the parents realized that he'd been missing and they called the police and they said, and they put out an APB or whatever the equivalent in Israel was, and they caught him because they knew his name, they had a description, they had a photo. It's a lot easier to find the bomber that way. Ended up in jail, but the family was quite happy he was alive. So again, this was, an, this was um, a, a counter example that the family didn't want the person to perpetrate the act. Whereas among the bombers, um, the two bombers that blew up Maxine's in Israel, uh, was it uh, the, the two South Asian British bombers that went to Israel to perpetrate an act of terrorism, their family members in England knew what they were up to and didn't say anything because apparently the sister had led a rather unusual life in England and knew that this was going to guarantee her ticket to, you know, to heaven, and she's been arrested and charged as well for having advance notice. So it, it varies significantly. A lot of times the families among the Sri Lankan, the Tamil bombers, will say, you know, 
it's better for them to say we don't know where our son is because they'll be blamed in the aftermath. And so very often when the families go missing, they don't even report a missing child. Reporting a missing child in that context means that people are going to assume that they've joined the LTTE. So I think it varies case by case, and I don't know if maybe you have some knowledge of specific cases that I don't know, but I do know that at least one bomber was caught because the family called up and said he's been missing for two days. That's not a good sign. Well, that's what they're going to say, though, isn't it? It's it's interest it's interesting that you And it's interesting that you raise this because you know there was a book that came out Army of Roses by Barbara Victor was a journalistic account and I have a colleague who's a psychologist and she's been she spent time with um all the people who survived Dubrovka in Chechnya and she's been doing all these really interesting interviews and again it's one of the few things coming out of Russia because you can imagine the Russians have clamped down on all the information coming out and she's been focusing on the uh, to what extent these women are actually widows or they're not widows whether they you know they're calling zombichki that whether they've been drugged or not and she to for comparison purposes went to the Palestinian territories and she interviewed the very same families that Barbara Victor had interviewed of the first four female Palestinian bombers and as she's talking at some point the father is so angry he pulls a knife and she looks at the translator and she's like what's going on because Anne doesn't speak any Arabic and the translator says you've insulted his daughter and he's horribly upset and she's like wait 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 and she pulls out the book and shows the book where the father had allegedly said something to Barbara Victor and apparently that's not the case. And I think it's important to know with the interviewing, and again, this comes from sort of other fields that I'm, as a political scientist I don't have my strength in psychology, you don't interview them once. Interviewing them once, you get the rhetoric and you get what it is that they expect you want to hear. And again, if you're the family of a bomber and you say, oh, sure, we knew what our son was up to, the chances are the next people to come to you will be the authorities. And, you know, given Israel's history of using torture to extract information, chances are that won't be a happy meeting. So, of course, to me, it makes perfectly good sense to say I didn't know anything. But the better way to do it is you have more than one interview. You go back and you ask a series of questions, and then you ask them a few times to see if the answer stays consistent through multiple interviews. And the problem is, you know, as political scientists doing field research, not everyone has the time or the access or the ability to do so. So that is, again, on the one hand, why statistical approaches, you know, have their weakness, but on the other hand, why the interview approach has its weakness. And I would say that probably the best approach is a hybrid in which you do both. I mean, it's, there's, there's ultimately there's no way to know, but many of the Palestinians live in very close quarters. It's not like the kids have their, like here, the kids have their own room, they have their own computer, they're on the internet, being the trench coat mafia or whatever it is that they're doing. There, it's very, you know, like, again, in the movie, 
The kid goes to go volunteer for, and again, the, I was looking to see which organization. It was a secular group rather than an Islamic group in the, in the film, and the mother's giving him his lunch. I mean, you know, and as he's making the video, the organization leaders are eating his lunch, and it's pissing him off because that's his lunch. But um, I would say that the family units are fairly cohesive in Middle Eastern families. It's, uh, it's more that when they have to be um, isolated for a series of days, like they might be involved in the organization, either, as I mentioned, anything from a passive supporter to a violent activist, and they might, over time, change the role or the degree of involvement the degree of their own commitment. So the families may know that they are sort of supporters of Hamas, but they may not know to what, you know, what their role is in the organization. So again, I just, uh, I encourage, I always try to encourage the, the grad students to keep doing research because I think that there's so much more to the story that we don't know and that there will be a lot of um, ideas that'll, in, maybe including many of my own, that'll be overturned over time as there's more data because right now, the data points are so small that it is, I mean, if correlates of war is statistically insignificant, you know, correlates of suicide bombing is even less. Well, we're way past the 1.15 Oh, gosh, sorry, I didn't. But, well, I'm not going to turn it off when there's so much interest. So, but I want to thank Mia for coming, and I want to thank all of you for coming. It's obviously been a very interesting and energetic talk. Let, let's hope, as John Mueller made war go obsolete, you can make terrorism. That would be great. That would be great. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. All. you.